I love singing that refrain, thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. The work on earth is not yet done, friends. You know what that means? What that means? The Spirit's still at work. The Spirit's still calling the church to do the work that God has called us, has commissioned us to do. And uh, it is a joy and a privilege always to sing about Christ, what Christ has brought to us, what the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do now that Christ has suffered on our place, in our place. You know, um, the Lord once in a while reminds us that I have become a Texan. It's the allergies. So I apologize for, uh, for that this morning. But beyond that, I hope that the Holy Spirit will work this morning in our midst as we open the Scriptures um, to God's Word. It is the Word that God revealed to His people, to those whom He calls to bear His name. And the reading of God's Word this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 8. We will be reading from verse 4 all the way to verse 25. Uh, you may find this passage on page number uh, 952. And um, encourage you to open the scripture and follow along the reading of God's word. As you turn there, I want to remind you that we are currently going through a series of sermons through the book of Acts. And we are taking our time through it. This is our 17th message. And I don't know how many we'll have by the end of the book. But the Lord is kind to us to reveal what He has done in the early church. And this morning we have a treat of knowing and hearing of what God did in Samaria. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, 
but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer, asking the Lord to speak to us once again. Bow with me, please. Lord, would you speak to your gathered people in this place? You have spoken to us already in your revealed word. Now we ask that you would illumine our minds and hearts to be able to understand your ways with us. Because, Lord, we recognize that our hearts are sinful. And we need your Spirit to impress upon our hearts what you have spoken and revealed through your word. And that is our prayer this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We saw last week. We saw last week how those who were scattered because of the word in Jerusalem, how those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And they were not just giving sermons, but they were literally speaking about Jesus in all kinds of settings, sometimes in public settings, sometimes in one-on-one settings. And chapter 8 gives us a focus about this kind of speaking about Jesus, this evangelism. The word for evangelism um, shows up five times in this chapter, even though many of the translations use other words than evangelism. They would use the word preaching, or they would use the word proclaiming. All these words in this chapter are actually referring to evangelism. And Luke will give us some examples. And the examples are both initiated by Philip, a man who had been chosen to be even a deacon earlier in chapter 7. The question is, why is Luke giving us two examples and only these two. Why is there so much focus on what Philip is doing first in Samaria and then to the Ethiopian eunuch? As we will know at the end of, of, each, of, these session, of each of these examples, we see the apostles continuing to preach the gospel in other parts of Samaria. But Luke doesn't tell us what happened. This time, Luke wants to focus not on the preaching of the apostles, but on the preaching of this other person who was a member of the church in Jerusalem, Philip. 
the focus falls on what's going on in Samaria. Why? Well, there's at least two reasons. At first, to show us that indeed the gospel expanded in Samaria as the Lord had asked the disciples to take the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But not only was it a city in Samaria that uh, heard the gospel, this particular city was lured by magic and all kinds of wonders. Can the gospel have any inroads in a city that is being controlled, that is being lured by magic? We will see. That's the first purpose. The second purpose, the second reason for mentioning this particular example is not just to give us the progress of the gospel in Samaria, but also to give us a great caution as Peter will confront Simon, the sorcerer, about the nature of his heart despite his initial profession of faith. So I've entitled this message, Great Joy and Caution in Samaria. Great Joy and Caution in Samaria. Um, a couple of things about what was going on in Samaria. Uh, the Samaritans were a mixture, as we know, uh, as a mixture of the northern tribes of Israel with the surrounding people. And because of their intermarriages, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans returned the favor. It was equal. Samaritans rejected about half or more of the Old Testament because more than half of the Old Testament related to the southern kingdom. They didn't like that. Also, the Samaritans, because they did not like the southern kingdom, they rejected all the prophecies related to the line of David. They rejected David as a king or the hope of ever being united again and having a king that came from the line of David. That's why the Samaritans, when they were looking for a, a rescuer, for a prophet from the Lord, they were looking for someone whom Moses promised, but someone who was very different than the Messiah who came from the line of David. They were not looking for any kind of ties with Jerusalem or with Judea or with the Jews. Well, this is the background behind Acts 8. When Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, and by the way, some manuscripts um, use actually a city in Samaria, not the city of Samaria. We're not really sure if it was the city of Samaria or a city in Samaria, but it doesn't really make a big difference. So Philip goes to this city, and before we, we get into what this passage is really about, I want to ask you to to join me in a parenthesis, a theological problem that happened or that's taken from this passage. And then we're going to go back to what this passage is really about. Before we get into this passage and what it's really about, I'm going to give you this fo the following heads up. This passage has been greatly used and examined in the history of the church for what is known as a two-stage initiation into the Christian faith, a two-stage initiation. There are two large denominations that look at Acts 8 as key for their theological practice of a two-stage initiation, and that is Roman Catholics and the Pentecostal churches. Now, they do this for various reasons, for different reasons. 
but the pattern is the same. The details are very different, but the pattern is the same. Catholics believe that the first stage of the Christian initiation is baptism, and the second is the confirmation by a bishop who is regarded a successor of the apostles, and that through the laying on of his hands, the Spirit is passed on to the new believer. Pentecostal churches, along with all the strands of charismatic um, churches, claim that the first stage is conversion and water baptism, and then there should be a second stage, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, so that in Pentecostal theology, they believe that there are two baptisms, baptism with water and the baptism with the Holy Spirit as two separate events. Now, if you look at Acts 8, you can understand why they would think so. Because in Acts 8, these two are happening separately. So Acts 8 is a key passage both for Pentecostals and Charismatics and for Roman Catholics, although, like I said, the details are different. Now, does this passage teach a two-stage process uh, in the Christian experience as being the norm? And the answer I would like to give you based on the rest of the book of Acts and based on everything else that happens in the, in the New Testament is no. There is no two-stage experience for the Christian faith. And yet then, why is the Spirit given after faith in Christ and baptism? Why is the Spirit given separately? There's only one other place in the book of Acts where this shows up in this pattern, in Acts 19. Outside of that, the Spirit is given prior to baptism and faith in, in, in the story of Cornelius, just in a few, a few chapters later. But here in Acts 8, the Spirit is given after faith and after baptism. Now, was the faith of the Samaritans somehow deficient? Was somehow their ba baptism def deficient? The answer is no. Is this a two-step process that is repeatable and possible today? The answer again is, is, is no. It's definitely not the norm. It's definitely not the expectation. Then why did it happen in Samaria? Well, I think it helps us to understand the context. It happened separately by the hands of the apostles for one particular reason, to prove that the Samaritans were included in the same community with Jerusalem Christians who had received the Spirit at Pentecost. It was important to help the Samaritan believers get the point in the most visible way that the Spirit they were to get was not a different Spirit. Just as on the day of Pentecost, Samaritans were notorious for coming up with their own system of religion. They have done that already with the Jews. Now it was important to communicate that the spirit they were to receive was not independent of what had happened in Jerusalem. So the spirit that, that fell on the apostles and on the believers on the day of Pentecost is now extended to the Samaritans, but it is extended through the hands of the apostles. It is one church, because it is one spirit. In God's providence, God determined that the Samaritans would receive the spirit as a special 
act from the hands of the apostles from Jerusalem to make a clear display that they were going to be included in the community whose Redeemer was the Messiah of the line of David. Just to prove that the this baptism of the Samaritans was not deficient, that the faith was not deficient, and, and somehow the, the separate act of receiving the Spirit is not a norm as a separate act, is proven in the next example of Philip baptizing the eunuch. The eunuch believes the message. The eunuch gets baptized. There's no more separate laying on of hands and separate receiving in the Spirit. Why? If anything, we read a miraculous thing happened. The Spirit took Philip away. The Philip disappeared. It's a spirit that took Philip away before there could be a separate praying and a separate laying on of hands. So from what we see in all of the book of Acts, we see so many different patterns, the way the spirit is given, and we see that it is not a norm or a requisite or a requirement that the spirit should be given as a separate act so that we can safely conclude that it, this is not a two-stage baptism. There's something unique that happened in Samaria. There's something unique that happened in that particular case to prove that the Samaritans were going to be added to the one church baptized by one spirit. That's why it's happening in this way. And that's a theological parenthesis. We close the parenthesis, and now we move on to understand what is happening in this story. Why is Luke giving us this story of Philip and Samaria and Simon the sorcerer? Two things, great joy, great caution. Great joy, great caution. What caused this great joy in Samaria? The message and the power of the gospel caused that joy. Philip goes to the city and look what he proclaims to them. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The word Christ is a translation of the Greek, which Christos, which was a translation of the, or transliteration of the Hebrew, Messiah. Now, if you were to translate the word Messiah, it literally means God's anointed king. Both the word Christ and Messiah are titles, and both of their translations is God's anointed king. What is, G what is Philip preaching to the people of Samaria? He's preaching to them about God's anointed king. Who is that king? It's Jesus. Look at verse 12. Philip preached, he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Samaritans were looking for the, for the kingdom of God, but they were not looking for his Jesus Christ, not from the line of David. But this is a great summary, a quick, great summary that helps understand that you can't talk about Jesus without talking about the kingdom of God. Nor can you talk about the kingdom of God without talking about the name of Jesus. When we proclaim Jesus, we proclaim not just a ticket out of hell, but we proclaim the coming of the reign of God through God's anointed king, Jesus. This is what Philip preached to them, even to the Samaritans who had very different expectations. 
Now, we are told that Philip's proclamation was accompanied by miracles and signs. And the purpose of these signs was primarily to authenticate and prove that God's reign was indeed powerful. And it was indeed more powerful than anything else these Samaritans have seen. Those who were controlled by evil spirits and unclean spirits were freed. Those who were uh, controlled by paralysms and uncurable diseases were healed. So verse 8 says, there was much joy in that city. Why? Well, we could say, well, of course, people got healed. That's great. And that could be one of the reasons behind their joy, just seeing the miracles. But, but look at what else, what got the attention of these Samaritans. Look with me back to verse 6. It's not simply the miracles. Look, look at verse 6. It says, And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. It was Philip's message that got their attention. Yes, they saw the signs. They saw the miracles that authenticated and said, you better listen to this guy because he has something not just to do. He has something to say. David Peterson in his commentary says, such close attention to the claims of the gospel is a prelude to genuine faith. Our miracles needed for effective preaching ministry. Are miracles needed for effective preaching ministry? The answer is no. We see that in the book of Acts many times. Sometimes people would turn because they simply heard the word of the Lord. But in this particular case, and especially what was going on in Samaria, it was helpful for the people to see that the power of God is greater greater than everything else, greater even than the power of Simon the sorcerer. And that's why Luke tells us there was something unique going on in this city. Prior to Philip's coming, the preaching and, and his preaching about Jesus, the city has been lured and has given its attention and admiration, admiration to a magician, to Simon, a sorcerer. They all paid attention. Look at verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is a power of God that is called great. And the problem is, Simon was not representing the true God and the great God. Simon was misleading them, even though he may have not known it, and even though they may have not known it. And this is a setting in which Philip comes. He walks into preaching Jesus into the city. The hearts of the city have been lured by a magician. Can the gospel make any inroads? in the city? And the answer is, of course, it does. Philip preaches, the gospel penetrates the hearts, and look at what happens in verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, or about the reign of God, and about the name of Jesus Christ, what happened? They were baptized both men and women. Now let me pause for a second. Let me pause. If you're not a Christian, I want to unpack this phrase and the meaning of the gospel in these categories of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. Why is a gospel summarized by these two phrases? Here's why. 
Christianity is not just a religion. Christianity is not just one option of worshiping some sort of deity among others. No, the Christian message is the news that God created us, made us in his image, perfect, wanting to make of us a reflection of who he is. And God's intent from the beginning was to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's Jesus' prayer for all of us, that God's reign would be on earth as it is in heaven. But there's only one problem. Humanity has rebelled against God. The head of the human race, Adam and Eve, rebelled against the word of the Lord, against this God who is determined to bring his reign on earth. Now, if you're a rebel and you hear that the king against whom you have rebelled is determined to bring his kingdom among you, among the rebels, what does that mean for rebels? That's bad news. Because his kingdom is coming and you are a rebel of that kingdom. That is bad news. has a solution. It's the only solution God could come up with. It's the only possible solution. God figured out a way. And that way was to send his only son, Jesus, and through him to turn rebels to become citizens of his coming kingdom. So that when his coming kingdom comes, it's no longer bad news, but it's a news of a banquet. And it is through Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, that rebels like you and me have their payment of their guilt and their punishment paid by Christ, not by us, so that we may actually become citizens, not of darkness, but citizens of the kingdom of light. So that when we turn to Christ, when we realize our rebellion and we acknowledge our sin and turn to Christ, we actually experience a change of citizenships, a change, a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is the gospel. The gospel is a news that God's kingdom is coming. And if you're a rebel, it's bad news. But along with that bad news, there is still hope. There's a good news that in Jesus, rebels can be turned into citizens. If you've never heard that news before, or if you've never responded to it, I pray that today you would consider God's solution, the only solution to turn rebels into citizens of that kingdom. If you have not done that, I would love to, to talk to you at the end of the service. You don't have to wait until the end of the service to talk to me. You can ask God to turn your heart, to transform your heart from being a rebel to being a citizen of his kingdom. That's all it takes a plea of desperation, and an embracing of God's solution through Christ to make us citizens of that eternal kingdom. Well, friends, this kind of reaction, this kind of offer, this kind of message was given in Samaria by Philip. This is what Philip preached when he preached the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. And amazingly, lots and lots of people in Samaria responded and to make their pu response public, 
They did it through baptism. That's right. The biblical way of making your public profession known is baptism. Why? Because this is the way the Lord determined it. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. It's not just what happens in the heart, although that's where it starts. That's where the major transaction happens. But it's also something that must be publicly made visible. This week I had a great joy of, of meeting with, um, with someone here in our own congregation who's been attending our services for a while and, and has expressed to me God's lead in his life to make public his profession of faith and to join this church. In the next few weeks we will do that. We will rejoice. There is great rejoicing when people understand the gospel, when people are willing to make that gospel visible through baptism, there's great rejoicing. That was, that's what's going on in the city of Samaria. And friends, the gospel should cause great joy in us. I wonder if there are people among us who still have not yet made that public display of the gospel a reality in their lives, in the act of baptism. I wonder if there's still here someone who perhaps has believed the gospel, has heard the news about Jesus, about his coming kingdom, has embraced that news, but has not yet made a public profession of that faith through baptism. And I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. One of the fruits of the gospel is conversions. And the way that fruit is displayed is through baptism. This should bring us great rejoicing. And I pray that the Lord will bring more of that in our church. I pray that as a result of the faithful proclamation of you, the members of the church, and me, the pastor of the church, the more we proclaim Christ, the more God will bring the fruit of the gospel. But then there's also another fruit of the gospel. It's a fruit of the gospel that's working in those who, are still, who have been converted, who are now professors of, of faith. There's still fruit of the gospel to be experienced in our own lives when we continue to grow in understanding the sweetness of God's grace, when we continue to grow in understanding the depthness of our sin and the amazing mercy of God, that he still forgave us rebels who would continue to sin even after we have been saved. It's amazing. The gospel should amaze us. And when the gospel does its work in us, and convicts us of our sin and of God's incredible grace, it should cause great rejoicing in us. Dear Christian, I wonder if the gospel is still producing joy in you. I wonder if the gospel is still producing joy in you. We often need other props to create joy in our lives. And when these props are taken away, so is our joy. I'll let you think about all the props are in your life. Sometimes things we're used to. Sometimes our traditions. Sometimes certain experiences. But the truth of the gospel and the work of the gospel in our hearts should be enough to create great joy. Friends, a church that gets the gospel is a joyous church. And if you feel like sometimes there's a lack of joy among us, 
And I know that's true. And some of you have expressed that to me. If you feel like there are times when there's lack of joy among us, I wonder if it's because we're using other props to create stuff around the gospel. And we look at that to be our joy. Should remember when the gospel does our work in us and around us, there should be great joy. And that's my prayer for us. That we would be a grateful a, a church with great joy, not because of props or other stuff, programs or, you know, you fill in the blank, but because of the gospel. How do we know in Samaria that joy may have been mixed? Well, you, all you have to do is just keep reading the rest of the, of, the, of the text. Even Simon believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and the miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, friends, I want you to imagine, translate this for the modern 21st century experience of Christians in America. If I could translate what this means, it feels like the most popular artist in America would become a Christian. I mean, can you imagine Christians would go crazy that the most popular artist in America became a Christian? I mean, tweets, newspapers, um, video to, um, videos on, on YouTube would go wild. I mean, just, you know, Christians would say, ha, 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 we told you, look, even the best of us can become a Christian. And, you know, there's something problematic when we rejoice more in the conversion of stars than the conversion of any anonymous sinner, as if somehow that's more miraculous. That just shows us how bad of a theology we have. For every person who comes to Christ, whether they're anonymous or a big star, it's a miracle. It's the same miracle. Only God can do it. And we should be cautious of somehow having more enthusiasm. But I can just imagine if this happened today, if this happened today, you know, we would make Simon um, an evangelist right away. We would ask him and set him up to be a conference speaker, to give his testimonies all over the place. I mean, we would make him not just a deacon. We would, you know, we would put him in the circle of elders in a church. We would have him plant a church. You know, because he already has such a great influence in that city. And, and humanly speaking, that's what we would do. And this is why this passage, when we read what Simon asks for, we would say, well, Simon, um, praise God, you want, you, want, you want more of the Spirit and you want to give it as well? And you're adding money to the treasury? Oh my goodness, we could start a building campaign? I mean, just, this, is, this, is, I, this is a miracle until Peter comes. And it feels, it feels like a cold shower over and over and over and over again. Peter, you don't understand. This guy is a hope. You don't understand, Peter. We could really start a church in Samaria if even this guy got saved. But look at what Peter does. He gives not just a great caution. He gives such a hard rebuke. Commentators 
are divided, whether Simon is actually saved and he's just slipping off and didn't get the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or if Simon, by this question, he's actually showing that he's not saved at all. When we look at the five challenges that, Simon gives, uh, that, that Peter gives Simon, it's hard for me to, to believe that he's saved. Look at, look at, look at, the, the, look at the objection. Look at, look at the conf- confrontation that, that Peter brings to Simon. First one, verse 20. May your silver perish with you. Whoa. Peter is not saying just may your silver perish. Saying may your silver perish with you. Whoa, Peter. What are you saying? What are you assuming? You don't say that unless you assume something or someone in that category is really in danger of perishing. Simon thought he could obtain the gift of God with money. And notice, he he doesn't even actually do the transaction. He just thought it in his heart. It's enough to cause an offense. He missed the entire point. The the entire point of of not only the Spirit, but of the Gospel. By the way, you can't get the Spirit without the Gospel, and you can't get the Gospel without the Spirit. Simon thought he could get the Spirit with money, and he missed it totally. Both the Spirit and the Gospel are given freely. Here's the second thing that... uh, that Peter gives to Simon. Simon, you have neither part nor lot in this manner. Whoa. The word Peter uses for, that's translated for this manner, is the word logos. It could literally be said, you have neither part nor lot in this word, which could be referring to the word that Peter, or that, that, that Philip preached, the word of the gospel. If it, refers to, if it refers to this manner, it could be just in this manner of the work of the Spirit. And if you have no part in the work of the Spirit, you have no part in the gospel. Plain and simple. Verse 21b. For your heart is not right before God. This is where the greatest change needs to happen. This is where the the gospel makes the greatest promise to us. It makes our heart from being not right with God to being right with God. That's what the gospel does. Blessed are the pure in heart. Who can claim we're pure in heart? No one, based on what we do. But everyone who claims the sacrifice of Christ over them and whose hearts have been changed by Christ can claim that. Apparently, this was not the case with Simon. Your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Why does Peter call him to repent? Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Friends, this is a status of every human being before he gets the gospel. In the bond of iniquity, in the gall of bitterness. And when we get the gospel, when we understand it and we embrace it and turn away from our rebellion, towards Jesus, the King that God appointed for us, when we get that, we are rescued from the bond of iniquity. Peter's elaborate rebuke 
shows us that Simon's problem is not just a deficient knowledge of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You know, his sin is, is, is remembered in the history of the church as a sin of simony. The, the, the sin of trying to buy power in the church or influence in the church with money. But Simon's problem is not just a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He misunderstands the gospel. Simon's response as well seems questionable. Look at verse 23. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now here's what's interesting about his prayer. He doesn't pray. He asks Peter to pray. And what is, what is the only thing he's concerned about? Not the offense he caused against God. He's concerned only about his consequences. True repentance deals not just with consequences. True, re true repentance deals with the offense that we have created against God. And Peter's instruction is, is telling, just pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Only the Lord can wipe away the offense we created. We can't. We may turn away from our sin, but we don't have the power to wipe away the offense. We don't have the power to wipe away the guilt. Only the Lord has the ability to wipe away the sin and the, the offense we caused. We can't put away the offense. That's why Peter says, pray to the Lord that if possible, if possible, and this, this instruction for if possible, why is Peter saying that? To warn Simon that we should not feel entitled to the Lord's forgiveness. We do not approach God in asking for repentance and for forgiveness with a sense of entitlement. If you, if, if, if you think that God grants forgiveness, it's that, that, that forgiveness is totally out of his mercy, not because he is entitled to, then we come to him as beggars, not as spoiled children who demand our rights or our status before our Heavenly Father. This is the heart of true repentance. This is what Peter is admonishing Simon. Five warnings. Five warnings. Now, church, I got a question for you. Have you ever heard these words in a church? Outside of the Bible. Have you heard these words in the church? Spoken to someone? Should these words ever be spoken in a church? What would you say if you heard someone utter these words to someone else? Is your view of the church or of Christianity such that these words would be totally inappropriate? Because if it is, you might have a wrong view of the church and of Christianity. When we deal with people's salvation, we can't treat things lightly. Was Peter insensitive? Probably. 
according to our standards. But when we're dealing with someone who is in the bonds of sin, we need to deal with it seriously. And especially when someone claims and professes to be a Christian. What do we understand from this as a church? Simon's heart had not been changed despite his outward confession of faith through baptism. Then this is a reminder to us that nominal Christians are a real possibility and a real danger in the church. And we should be cautious of this danger. I love what David Peterson in his commentary on this passage says, whenever and wherever God is at work among people, there are not only genuine responses, but also counterfeit ones. Goes hand in hand. We should not be surprised by that, or we should not be naive that that's not possible. When evidence of lack of change of heart becomes apparent, we do people a great service to point it out. And calling people to repent should not be considered or be done as an insult, but as a great act of love, as an act of great love, because we call them to return to the Lord. That's what we should call them to. And when we preach the gospel, here's a second implication, what I'd like to leave you with very practically. When we preach the gospel and people respond by turning to faith in Christ, we should give them not a superficial assurance of salvation, but a biblical assurance of salvation. And the biblical assurance of salvation comes with a caution. And the caution is, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. What this means for us, instead of saying to someone who had just accepted Christ, or perhaps had, had prayed a prayer, or whatever they may have done or got baptized, we should say, well, now that you prayed the prayer, now that you got baptized, you are saved and you should never doubt it. I think it's very superficial. I think it's more appropriate, biblically speaking, to say, well, just because you've done this does not mean it is true. Time will tell. If it's true, it will persevere. And that you can be assured of. But time will tell. So friends, when we think about evangelism, we should have not just a superficial picture of, of the gospel message. We should not have just a superficial picture of the response of the gospel. Yes, when the gospel is preached and people come to the Lord, there should be great rejoicing. But there should be also a caution, a biblical caution, that some people may respond for the wrong reasons. What they're trickled, tricked by, and what triggers them to respond is not the actual message, but what they see around, the props that go around and along with the gospel message. In this case, in, in, in Simon's case, it was the miracles. That's what lured him. And therefore, we need to be cautious to assume or to expect that someone's profession of faith is necessarily a true change of heart. And when there is evidence, I'm not saying we should be looking for it 
and sort of spying for it. But when the evidence becomes clear through one's way of life or through one's lack of perseverance, we should do what Peter does. We should not think that Peter's words are inappropriate in a church. I pray that we would be the kind of church where the gospel does its true work among us so that there would be great rejoicing because of the work of the gospel, not of its props. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our gracious Father, we praise your holy name because you have promised that the message of the gospel carries with it the power of God unto salvation. And that salvation is a true salvation. It's a true change. It's a true change of status from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's a true change in power to break the bond of sin and iniquity. It's a true change of heart from a dark heart to a clean heart. Oh, Father, I pray that we would continue to focus and rejoice and expect and desire the power of your gospel to work its true work in our hearts, in our midst. Father, give us the discernment not to be naive. Give us the discernment not to to believe spurious faith or people's initial reactions as necessarily being what it is. Father, give us discernment and great love that we would do so in a way that promotes and encourages the work of the true gospel so that your kingdom may come, your reign may come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.